from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, either you enjoy talking to people or you don't. Now I do crazy things, whatever it takes. And it's not real tight, you know, it's just like song. Keep listening, stay right there. Don't go anywhere, stay safe. The relationship between arts organizations and the companies that help fund them can get dicey. Here in New York, we just went through the Shakespeare in the Park brouhaha. For a production of Julius Caesar, the title character was costumed to look like President Trump. Because in the play, like in real life 2,000 years ago, Caesar is assassinated by some Roman senators, Trump's supporters thought or pretended to think that the production was condoning the assassination of the president. Anybody who watches this play tonight, and I'm sorry, there's going to be a couple of spoiler alerts here. That is Oscar Eustace, who is the artistic director of the public theater and specifically the director of this production of Julius Caesar. But we'll know that neither Shakespeare nor the public theater could possibly advocate violence as a solution to political problems and certainly not assassination. Bank of America canceled their support of the production and Delta Airlines went further, declaring themselves no longer the official airline of the public theater. If arts organizations don't like any strings attached when corporations donate money to them, it could be argued that maybe, sometimes, they should turn away the money in the first place. For instance, consider the billionaires David and Charles Koch, who've donated gazillions to all kinds of cultural organizations, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, the American Ballet Theater, New York City Opera, the Museum of Natural History, many, many more. Meanwhile, Coke Industries, their private company that's in all kinds of industrial businesses, including especially fossil fuels, have also indispensably promoted the climate change denial movement. They've funded experts and think tanks to cast doubt on the scientific consensus that global warming is real and mainly caused by CO2 from burning coal and gas and oil. When President Trump withdrew recently from the Paris Climate Accords, the director of Columbia University's Earth Institute, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, said that that just wouldn't have happened without the Kochs. This is the victory paid and carried out for 20 years by two people, David and Charles Koch. This combination of the Koch brothers' political and economic advocacy with their cultural philanthropy was the subject of a recent Washington Post column by Philip Kennicott the paper's art and architecture critic. Kennecutt thinks that because the Koch brothers do so much to undermine environmental science and policy, arts organizations and museums should not, on principle, accept their money. Philip, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks for having me. So, to the degree that the Koch brothers have funded PR and media that encourages denial of scientific fact, I couldn't agree with you more that that's a bad thing. But arts organizations desperately need funding, and the hundreds of millions that the Cokes give are as green as anybody else's money. So what's your problem? 
I actually agree with you to the extent that I don't think culture and arts organizations should be in the business of vetting every single dollar for ideological purity. Good. I think that puts them in a very unfair position. Um, and I think it also further politicizes the arts in a way that we don't we don't want to see happen. My argument in this piece is that there is something about what the Koch brothers have managed to do and the impact that has already had on our political, our moral, and our intellectual life that is actually going to make things very difficult for arts organizations in particular. So the impact is one that is specifically arts-related. You make this really beautiful, eloquent case in your piece that we create and enjoy art in part to communicate with these hypothetical people of the future. Then you say that won't happen, i.e. these future people won't look at our art or read our novels. That won't happen if the planet dies. Now, it seems to me when you say the planet dies, as opposed to seas will rise, uh, cities become uninhabitable, uh, agriculture will change, there are all these disasters that global warming will possibly create, but the planet dies? Well, it depends on who you want to listen to. I'm not a scientist myself. Prominent climatologist for NASA has basically said that we've passed the threshold of carbon uh, densities at which basically we're going to be living on a planet that was not adapted for civilization. If, if you look at people who are in a position to have to make predictions about the future, about what climate change will actually do, a lot of very smart people are making some very dire predictions. The Pentagon, for instance, is not sitting around debating the science of whether or not global warming is happening. Nor should they be or anyone else. You're, you will get no argument from me about those real possible grave effects of climate change. Let me, if I might, turn this around. Can I ask you a question? Is there any kind of money that is too tainted that an arts organization shouldn't accept? That is the great question. And yes, the answer is yes, of course. So now we're debating where is the line, right? It's not whether or not... Yeah, but of course there's a line in all things, right? Some people think the Cokes uh, should be pariahs and nobody should accept their money. I, I'm not sure how I feel, but should a Nazi or uh, people who, who are, are murdering hundreds of thousands of people directly... Should they be off uh, the scale? For sure. So, of course, we're arguing what's bad enough. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation about that kind of slippery slope, that we don't want to start uh, applying a virtue litmus test to all donors. That's what I worry about, is is that slippery slope of, of like, well, this, this guy or this woman or this company does this thing I disapprove of. And that's why I do think it's important that in most cases, arts and cultural organizations are given the benefit of the doubt and given the freedom to go about their way without being held to um, a standard that is examining every single dollar um, and every single association that they make. The issue here really does hinge on whether or not climate change is leading to a world in which the products of civilization that we so highly cherish and that we want to pass on will simply have no audience for us to pass them on to. That's what scares me. And I hope that I'm wrong in that sense. But that means I also hope that a growing number and an ever sort of increasing consensus of scientific opinion is wrong as well. Although what you are saying in your piece is that arts organizations who get the money from the Kochs with no strings attached should nevertheless figure out a way to not take their money. There is this other question which we haven't talked about yet, and that is the intangible benefits that come back to the donor through association with something that is culturally beloved. Um, the kind of wa whitewashing or rep reputation cleansing. It's long 
wandering in, in your view. Yeah. Wandering. Yeah. My biggest issue with the idea that arts organizations should forswear this money because these guys do these bad things and we're laundering them and we're prettifying them and normalizing them or whatever is that it won't do any good. It, 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 it will make them feel virtuous, but it won't actually de-normalize them or slow climate change down or anything else. It's just – it's a vanity, you know? Well, you've looked at it from the perspective of the, the arts organization. But let's speak hypothetically about a donor who's had his $100 million refused by an arts organization on principle. I don't think it's ridiculous to say that that might cause some serious reflective thinking um, to the person who was trying to give that money. Why was it refused? What have I done that has become anathema in the public square? Yeah, you might be right. And on the one hand, I think of somebody like the Kochs, and if one reads interviews with them, they're very intelligent people who have considered these issues as opposed to, say, a Donald Trump-type person who appears to be shameless and hasn't considered these things. And you probably wouldn't effect by not taking his money. Uh, so I'm a little dubious that the salutary effects won't be outweighed by the fact that good some good arts organization or museum will have 10 or 50 or 100 million less to do good things with. Well, I think that um, you'll be pleased probably because I suspect that I will not convince anybody staring down a $100 million donation <laughs> not to take it. Um, yeah. And in a way, I, I will admit that uh, my expectation of succeeding on that rhetorical level was was, was fairly low. Uh, what I want to do, however, is to underscore the simple idea that anxiety about the climate is not an issue that is miles and miles and miles away from what happens inside museums and opera houses, that it is connected um, at a deeper level, as I said about this notion of stewardship and the passing on of civilization, and it goes really to the heart of the aesthetic experience to want to believe that we're going to have a livable planet and, and subsequent generations to participate in these things. Uh, Philip Kennecott, this has been uh, a delight, and I hope we can talk again. Well, I hope next time I can, I can lead you entirely to enlightenment and uh, assuage any doubts you have. Anytime. I'm welcome for that to happen. Anyway, thank you, for <laughs> Philip Kennecott. Thank you very much. Thank you. Philip Kennecott is the art and architecture critic for The Washington Post. By the way, PRI is an affiliated company of WGBH, and David Koch supports the science series Nova, which WGBH produces. The documentaries of Errol Morris can be dark. The Thin Blue Line was about the murder of a police officer in Dallas. The Oscar-winning Fog of War was about the war in Vietnam. He's also documented the abuses at Agu Ghraib in Afghanistan, uh, the life of a Holocaust-denying death row technician, and he interviewed Ed Gein. He's a serial killer. So what unspeakable horror does Errol Morris's new film explore? A really nice lady in Massachusetts who makes really big photographic portraits. In my life, I've worked hard not to be down. I don't like to take pictures of people who are sad. I have this idea that it's my role in the universe to make people feel better. That's Elsa Dorfman, the photographer who is the subject of Errol Morris's new documentary, The B-Side. For decades, she's been renowned for her enormous Polaroid portraits of everyday people and of non-everyday people like Allen Ginsberg and Bob Dylan and Faye Dunaway. 
Even for those celebrities you think you've already seen from every possible angle, Elsa Dorfman's portraits are really warm and revelatory. And as it turns out, so is Morris's film about Dorfman. It looks back at her one-of-a-kind DIY career and now, at age 80, the beginning of her retirement. And Errol Morris is here to talk about that film and his other films. Uh, Errol, welcome back to Studio 360. A pleasure to be back here. So I'm uh, obviously a great fan of yours. Oh, good. You're a fan. I can relax now. You can totally relax. So I, I guess I knew, okay, he makes movies about charming eccentrics on the one hand and then uh, reviled pariahs on the other kind of in a basic way. My line, never have met a pariah I didn't like. <laughs> well, there you go. And you've done well by many of them. But this is a lovely film about a lovely person, this 80-year-old uh, portrait photographer, Elsa Dorfman. How did you choose her? I've known her for 25, 26 years. Elsa works on this large format Polaroid camera, uh, one of the few people who has access to this. Mm -hmm. She was moving a lot of these gigantic, really big Polaroid photographs, 60 by 40, out of the house, and I thought, I should start making this film. Aside from being about a much happier subject than lots of Errol Morris documentaries, uh, this movie looks different. So why is that? So we decided to use multiple cameras in shooting this portrait of Elsa Dorfman, and I have used this lens system, the Revolution, for years. I've used it on I don't know how many commercials. And so the Revolution lens, which allows you the to— The Revolution system. The Revolution system is, uh, in 75 words or less, what? Do I have to count the words as I'm saying I'll, them? I'll do that for you. Thank you so much. It's a double periscope, so it can turn this way and that way so that you can really move the camera in many different directions, and you can do it pretty easily. So that it, it, it just allows lenses to go places that a they, fixed lens on a fixed camera can't. That is it. Okay. And the nice thing about the revolution for me— is that I could operate the camera and interview at the same time. I could, what's the word, multitask. Mm -hmm. As opposed to ordinarily you have to be not operating the camera? Well, when I'm on the Interitron, I'm trapped. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not using the Interitron on this. Right. The Interatron. I like saying that word. Uh, that's your, your trademark setup you've used for 15 years or so, which is this system that has mirrors carefully placed so that when you're interviewing somebody, they are both looking directly into your camera and maintaining eye contact with you. Um, so why, why wasn't that right for filming the B-side? Because I got tired of doing things the same way. Don't you? Yes. <laughs> is that it, really? <laughs> yeah, I think it is it. Uh, it gets boring after a while. The Interitron started to bore me after a while. Huh. And I used it quite a bit. Enough already. Huh. Uh, is there some reason you didn't have your lawyers patent the Interitron? Because that's a very patentable idea. Because I'm stupid. Oh, okay. I had... Made a film about Stephen Hawking, Brief History of Time. 
And the New York Times ran an article about it, and they had a two-page spread that showed me with my new device, the Interatron. What I didn't know at the time, uh, you have a year, one year from the date of the first public announcement of your invention, device. I had no idea. Huh. I thought you were just Mr. Open Source. I don't care. Here, the world, have it. I guess not. No, I care deeply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the revenue from that well, thing. Exactly. Um, I'm going to end up in a substandard nursing home, yeah. strapped to a bed, soaked with my own urine, simply because I was unaware of this fundamental fact of patent law. Oh, I very much doubt that. Um, Errol, your movies are, are great in lots of different ways, including that they often capture these moments of surprising candor. If you're kind of a, oh, this will be the same forever person, or if you're a photographer and you're always nailing down what's the now, when you realize it doesn't matter how much you try to nail down the now, the now is racing beyond you. All of a sudden you have these cameras that they're artifacts like ashtrays. That's uh, the B-side, uh, your portrait of Elsa Dorfman. I'm sure you didn't ask. <laughs> Maybe you did. But, like, does photography remind you of the the ephemerality and evanescence of life, Elsa? But I assume you didn't. But you got to that, her making that connection. Um, do you have, a like, a, a, a set of tactics or a strategy for getting to those moments? I don't think it's a calculation of that sort at all. Either you enjoy talking to people or you don't. Either you're interested in people or you're not. Um, it's part of the deal. Why are you drawn to doing this? Uh, there's something about talking to people that interests you. Is it a calculation? I don't know you well enough, but I doubt it somehow. No, you're right. You obviously are good at it and and good at not just having a friendly conversation with somebody, but have conversations that go in places that surprise the person you're talking to. Yeah. Why that is, hell if I know. Are you a good listener? Is that part of it? I am a good listener. Oddly enough, what is a good listener? <laughs> a good listener is a person who bothers to listen at all because most people don't. Uh, a person who tries not to senselessly interrupt, but waits just out of some interest. What's going to happen next? What are they going to say? There was uh, an amazing moment like that in, in your film, The Fog of War. Um, this is Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, talking about the U.S. firebombing of Japan during World War II, uh, which was an operation where he worked for General Curtis LeMay. LeMay said if we'd lost the war, we'd all have been prosecuted as war criminals. And I think he's right. He and I'd say I were behaving as war criminals. LeMay recognized that what he was doing would be thought immoral if his side had lost. 
But what makes it immoral if you lose and not immoral if you win? Uh, to me, that was one of the most memorable moments of that very good film, Fog of War. Um, just so shockingly frank and said with such sort of sang-froid about, uh, yes, I was a war criminal, but we won. Um, how, how did that moment come? Oddly enough, this line uh, about our side won or else I would have been tried as a war criminal came very, very early on. He wanted to say that. I'd like to take credit for it. You I'd like to say beat him I, up and got it out of him. I'd like to say I elicited it through the use of some trick or another, but that is not true. Uh, I was there to listen and to record it, for which I am very grateful. And coming from Robert McNamara and a former Secretary of Defense uh, for both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. An extraordinary statement. Um, speaking of presidents, uh, long before he was president or anybody imagined he could be president in 2002, you talked to Donald Trump uh, about his favorite uh, movie. Um, how did that happen? How did that come about? Uh, I had been hired to make a movie to run at the beginning of the Oscars. And my brief was to ask people about their favorite movies. And so I set up in four different cities, interviewed people, famous people, not so famous people. And we're in New York in a studio. And at one time in the green room, I have Walter Cronkite, Jesse Norman, Iggy Pop, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Donald Trump. Wow. So the Russian collusion was going on then. What that a, was the very beginning of it, absolutely. What an amazing <laughs> moment. So basically everybody was just told, Errol's going to talk to you about your favorite movie? Yeah. Well, here's a clip of the not yet president. Citizen Kane was really about accumulation. And at the end of the accumulation, you see what happens, and it's not necessarily all positive. And I think you learn in Kane that maybe wealth isn't everything. Because he had the wealth, but he didn't have the happiness. In real life, I believe that wealth does, in fact, isolate you from other people. It's a protective mechanism. You have your guard up, much more so than you would if you didn't have wealth. You know, if you could give Charles Foster Kane advice, what would you say to him? Get yourself a different woman. And, of course, he was then between wives number two and three. So, yeah. It's the takeaway from Citizen Kane. What should Charles Foster Kane have learned from his experiences? Find a new wife. <laughs> yes. And if that one doesn't work out, find one after that. Yes. And so on and so forth. Uh, he was so... Uh, vulnerable. Did he just come that, did he come, he understood what this was and I'm ready to play? No, not really. I didn't even use that clip in the film that I made for the Oscars. Instead, it was Donald Trump talking about King Kong at the top of the Empire State Building. Seeing King Kong try and conquer New York. He came and conquered New York? I can identify with that. Yeah. 
which which is the which is a, like a Trump branded line. So is a Trump came. branded line from Trump. Yes, indeed. Uh, Errol Morris, uh, it's been a pleasure and a delight and uh, an honor. Thank you. Likewise, thank you. Errol Morris's new film, The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's portrait photography, is in theaters starting June 30th. And you can watch a clip of Errol explaining the Interatron in greater detail at studio360.org. Coming up, the young novelist Angie Thomas at a very low point. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to take care of me. How a certain 90s pop song saved a life. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Fifteen years ago, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, the L in the huge group TLC, died at age 30. As part of TLC, she helped make memorable songs like And This And This One TLC fan was a girl in Jackson, Mississippi named Angie Thomas. I had these two friends in middle school, and the three of us pretended we were TLC all the time. So I was always left eye, and they were T-Boz and Chili, and we would practice TLC songs in my driveway. We would um, play the songs maybe on a little Walkman, even though it had headphones. You could try to turn the volume all the way up so you could still hear it, and we would try to do the songs and the raps and everything and do our own little dances that they would do in the videos. But on the last day of sixth grade, my school decided to announce the students with the highest GPA. And I was a sixth grader, but I had the highest GPA in the entire school, more so than the seventh and eighth graders. And the teachers made the seventh graders feel kind of bad that a sixth grader had a higher GPA than them. So I guess they remembered that over the summer (laughs) because on my first day of seventh grade, The eighth graders just harassed me. I couldn't go down the hall without one of them pushing me or making a comment about me. They were calling me fatty. Um, They would push me. They would try to trip me, all kind of stuff. I remember looking for those friends that I just had in sixth grade that I was, you know, imitating TLC with, and they were silent. And I get it now because when you're that age, your first instinct is to protect yourself and not stick up for your friend. But I wished that they would stick up for me and they didn't. So I remember going home and just, I was done. I was done. My mom, I love my mom to death. And she did so much for me and for my grandmother. Um... She took care of my grandmother full time as a caregiver because my grandmother ended up having dementia. And then us struggling financially, not having a car, you know, having to ask neighbors to take us to the grocery store and stuff like that. It was hard. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to 
take care of me. I thought that that was the best thing um, if I just got out of the way. I had a moment where I just decided I was going to do it, and I locked myself in the bathroom, and I was going to take some pain medicine. I, for some reason, took my little walk, my little CD player into the restroom with me, and I just sat on the floor and I cried. And my mom was outside of the bathroom telling me, just come out, please, don't you know. She's trying to talk me down. She didn't know that I was trying to take pills or anything like that, but she was trying to just get me to come out to talk to her. And I wanted to drown her out. So I put my headphones on and I pushed play on the CD player. And Waterfalls came on. In that moment, I decided to really listen to the song. As much as I enjoyed the song, I decided to really listen to it and really listen to Lisa's rap. She ended the rap with saying, Dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me and you. And I remember listening to those lyrics and it spoke to me in such a way that I decided... No, I'm not going to take these pills. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight. I'm going to keep going because there's a rainbow on the other side of this. I turned the CD off and I took my headphones off and I went out of the bathroom and I apologized to my mom because I knew I scared her. And I told her, I was like, this song, I told her about the song. I said, this song just really changed me just now. Well, I started listening to him myself. My name is Julia Williams Thomas, and I'm Angie's mom. I thought about what Angie was going, had been going through, and I thought, oh, if I could just get Lisa to talk to Angie, maybe, maybe that would cheer her up. I called recording studios, record label companies, I called everybody and anybody I could think of to try. And I had some other co-workers and other parents say, girl, you crazy. I wouldn't be trying to call that woman. Uh, well, you can stay in your mode, baby, and I do crazy things, whatever it takes. And so I found the name of her studio that she had, had at that time, not realizing that was located at her house. So when I called, <laughs> there was this young lady on the phone answered, and I told her who I was and that my daughter was crazy about Lisa and how Lisa had really made an impact on my child's life. And I was like, if she could just say hello. And the next voice I heard was Lisa Left Eye Lopez. I was in another room. And my mom was talking to Left Eye from TLC on the phone and explaining to her everything. And my mom comes in the room where I am. I was watching television. My mom muted the television. She said, someone wants to speak to you. So I took the phone and I say hello. And she goes, hey, this is Left Eye. I dropped the phone. <laughs> 
I dropped the phone. And so when I got on the phone, she said, are you okay? (laughs) And I said, yes, ma'am. And then she was like, oh, you said (laughs) ma'am. I don't think she was used to kids saying ma'am to her. So I'm Southern. I couldn't help it. And we were just talking and she, she, you kind of eased into it. You know, it wasn't a thing of from jump, let me talk her off the ledge. No, it was like, let me ease my way into it. So she told me, you know, your mom told me you've been going through some stuff. And she was like, I'm sorry that you, you know, feel like you have to end it, but don't. And she said, you know, you have so much to fight for. You got your mom, you got your grandmother, you've got so many things that you can do in your life one day. She said, don't take your life. She was a simple with it. You know, don't do it. And I used to wish that my life would end. You know, my mom would look at me and say, oh, I'm so I'm so sad to hear you say that. And if you don't know what it feels like to be happy, you, re- you don't know what you don't know, you know. So it's, it's like there's no hope. But um, doesn't really have to be that way, so. She said, I'm talking from experience. And it may seem like it's hard right now, but I promise it will get better. I remember just, I was, I was just more so stunned that it was left eye talking to me, but still it's, it hit me. And I was like, yes, ma'am. You know, (laughs) Lisa said some things to her that really encouraged her in a way like I could never have done myself. At least I felt like I couldn't have, but it made a difference. It made an impact, and it stirred my daughter and encouraged her in a way, honey, that it's like, whatever, I'm going through this, and I'm coming out of this. TLC was the biggest girl group ever. At that time, they were, like, humongous. So the fact that my mom was able to find the number, the fact that we were able to get her on the phone, it showed me, okay, Anything can happen. If that can happen, anything can happen for sure. Angie Thomas is the author of The Hate You Give, which is her debut novel and which earlier this year was the number one New York Times bestselling YA book. And by the way, the two surviving members of TLC recently released their fifth and final studio album. Coming up, when punk rockers stop calling themselves punk rockers. New Wave was like really a deliberate attempt to find a more palatable way to say punk. It was a marketing tool. Because the punk thing was scary to people. Yeah, punk was too scary. I talk semantics with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein from Blondie. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. That is a brand new track from a band I saw at a club, a 10-minute walk from my apartment right after I moved to New York City and lived in East Village in 1976. Uh, It is Long Time, a new 
track by Blondie and Debbie Harry and Chris Stein are here with me now in Studio 360. And Chris Stein, just so listeners know what's going on, is wearing dark glasses, which pleases me a lot because it's fully on brand, I think. We try harder. Um, welcome, both of you. Thank you. What Thank would, you. Where would that club and apartment have been? CBGB's uh, oh, 9th Street club. between 1st and 2nd. Okay. That club. I have Back sunglasses. I can put them on. No, I'd rather see your eyes. Okay. Him, I can, I, whatever. Um, that track that we just heard for this new album, Long Time, uh, was co-written with this guy, Dev Hines, who people know or not uh, as a guy who performs as Blood Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of these, uh, I guess, unexpected collaborations on this record by people who probably idolized you when they were children. Um, <laughs> um, how did you recruit and decide on who you would do this with? We just... Uh got, you know, tracks sent to us and we listened to them and chose the ones we liked. Yeah? Yeah. We, you know, we put out feelers. There's a little bit of discovery and curation went on. With some people we pursued and others we just... Were passive about and they yeah. they flung things in our direction. Oh, you were you were pursued as well? That's always nice. Yeah. Yes, well, we absolutely. we put out feelers that we were looking for material. Yeah. So we went over like 30 tracks at least. Yeah. We asked you guys, and you consented to put together a playlist for our listeners with some of the bands that have influenced uh, this new album. So let's uh, play the uh, first one. Okay. This is that Nada track. But my Italian is really flimsy. She's Italian. This is in Italiano. Sansa. Something about not having a wife or something? You tell me, dude. It's your song. I think. Yeah. Really, really like this track, and I wound up, you know, I I will play things 30 times in a row. And this is one of those. It's so, uh, dare I say it, kind of, I mean, unblondie-ish, because it's so simple. It's just such this girl singing, right? Well, we had a a simple stage, you know, at the very beginning. We had a real... We had a real basic beginning. Really? Oh, yeah. You yeah. were like a folk singer? Um, well, we had a three-piece band, so it was very minimal. It's a right. little more aggressive than that track, but yeah, generally. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Huh. Uh, well, uh, thank you for introducing me to her. I didn't know nada. Uh, here's another song from your playlist. It's called Flashed Junk Mind by Milky Chance. You know this, right? This is a big hit. Well, you gotta. She's saying no because she I didn't know from the first b- two bars. Once I heard it, I realized I'd heard it a million yeah. times. But what do you like about it musically? It's uh, it's kind of primitive, and it's I I like these songs that sound like hippie jams. You know, it sounds like a bunch of guys in a room just doing it, and it's got a great melody. It's clever. And uh, it's this kind of stoner track. Yeah, and they're Germans. You got you got your Italian. You got your Germans. You got your whole axis okay. going there. You know, <laughs> you've always been grabbing influences uh, from elsewhere. I was reminded of your 1980 hit Rapture. First number one pop song that had rap on it. Um, when rap 1980 was still new and unfamiliar. Um, you had another hit that year uh, called The Tide is High, which was a cover song in this 
proto-reggae-ish uh, genre. Now, those, I mean, weren't obvious for you guys to record then. Uh, what, what, how, how did those come into your stream? I think we've always, we were always reggae fans. Yeah. And uh, what was that, Mighty Sparrow? Mighty Sparrow, we loved Mighty Sparrow. Lovely. I always wanted to try one of those Calypso songs with yeah. the band, band yeah. but we never could pull it off. Yeah. Do you know that Mighty Sparrow track, Wanted Dead or Alive? That just kills me. So wonderful. That's so yeah. great. Yeah. If I wanted So you felt free back then to drive outside your lane. Yeah, yeah I don't think there was a lane, there, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a lane. It was just we all just, one big shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or ditch, in some cases. <laughs> um, here's another song from your playlist. Well, this is, you know, a little later after we had passed through CBGB's came the hardcore scene in the 80s. And I think these guys were, you know, this part is of that. Fugazi. Yeah. Or Fugazi. Fugazi. Fugazi was the car dealership, so it's always That's, hard for me not to pronounce it that way. Yeah. Because it is for all New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, this is Waiting Room. Yeah, this is like the right. brilliant yeah. Love it. pop song, even though it's a hardcore punk song. It is a hardcore punk song, and I remember in the late 80s when Fugazi came along, and I thought, like, whoa, are we done with punk now? I mean, it wasn't that a decade ago. It's still going on now. I, I see, know, I, I see know. great young bands out there. Yeah. I l always love the sound of all of these guys' voices, you know. And it's not real tight, you know. It's just, like, song. I, I just love that. Yeah. There's something really terrific about this track, though. It just always knocks me out, because it's so simplistic and minimal. It's just so it's so great. I, I don't know. It struck me though at the time uh, as as a revival of this thing that had just happened not very many years earlier. Do you know? Like, wow, we're not giving up this punk idea. Somewhat, but it was a little reframed in the hardcore uh -huh. situation. Uh -huh. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of the pigeonholes that you were described as new wave or punk, or I'm sure others, w did you embrace one of them and say, yeah, that's what we are? I think we mostly said we were a pop band. Yeah. You know, even back then. We had no excuse. It's Yeah. That's all there was. <laughs> New Wave was like really a deliberate attempt to find a more palatable way to say punk. Yeah. And to say we're a little intellectual. Yeah. Oh, yeah, God. I guess, yeah. <laughs> it was but, a marketing tool. Well, what isn't? Because the punk thing was wow. scary to people. Yeah. Yeah. Punk was too As scary. a label. Right. You, Debbie, back then, were one of the very few women fronting a successful rock band. Really, the one for a while. D did that seem at the time like, oh, my God, uh, I I've had to be so much tougher to do that? Or did it seem like, oh, my God, this is a great opportunity because I'm the only one? No, I didn't think that I was the only one. And um, I, I don't know. I, I just uh, was determined, I guess, or obsessed. <laughs> and so, but I mean, there actually were a lot of girls on the scene um, that never really got out beyond a certain point. Why did you? 
I had a good partner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, know, you, you looked good. Various. I looked good. Looked okay. Yeah. Occasionally sounded good. Yeah. You know. Um, I want to play a great older Blondie song uh, called Ex Offender. This is either you guys <laughs> at CBGB in 1976. Oh, God. Performing live. Maybe I, maybe I was there. <laughs> wow, it sounds like it's like inside a bucket. <laughs> it's punk, man. Yeah. Oh, God. Get her off. Get the hook. <laughs> this is Gary Valentine's song. It's very frenetic. Yes. We play it now, but we don't play it that fast. Yeah, it's a little maniacal. <laughs> uh, CBGB's was really a hard room to play because the PA was so far out in front of the stage that you didn't get any sense of right. ambience. And all, all the people standing there were right, yeah. you know, having their eardrums yeah. destroyed by the speakers, <laughs> yes. Uh, what do you think when you, when you hear that now, other than like, oh, is that you playing or not? Oh, God. Yeah, it's a little messy. Yeah. Well, no, I don't mind the messiness. It's just, just so squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning your voice or the recording quality? Everything. All of the above. Yeah. Yeah. So CBGB's back then was this incredible scene with all these young musicians, not just you guys, but Talking Heads and the Ramones and Patti Smith, all of them uh, playing there and cross-pollinating. Did, did that at the time feel like this incredible ground zero to you? Not exactly. I mean, we knew that, you know, there was a lot of great bands and, and it was an enjoyable scene. You know, there's a lot of characters there and friends and, you know, it was exciting. So, um, you know, there was something happening every night. But we had all seen like the dolls yeah. go out and yeah. not succeed really in America, you know, because it was just too weird. Yeah, so everybody, the, the New York Dolls, for yeah. those who don't remember. Everybody yeah. was kind of insulated. You know, it was a little exclusive niche. That we, you could just be New Yorkers in New York and screw the rest of the world. Kind of. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there, are there scenes, equivalent scenes today that you have seen or, or step into or tap into? I, I don't think they have the same time to ferment. I think they are immediately uploaded onto YouTube and are given attention very quickly. So I, right. I think that period of four years that the scene was going without much attention was significant in its formation. Even if they all live in Brooklyn, they, it doesn't have the same... That's an interesting thing. That it doesn't have that same, that, you know, aged in casks uh, kind <laughs> of uh, a built thing to have. Perhaps. Moldy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of pollinator, as I was thinking about, oh, w w w the scene you were in in the 1970s, and and I, I think I used the word cross-pollination. Did it feel that, like you were all yeah, kind of affecting each other? Yeah, we were definitely influenced by television and the Ramones and the people around us. Yeah. I'm putting on my oh, pollinator is. hat. Whoa! She's now wearing, ladies and gentlemen, a, uh, well, first of all, the headphones are now like a... a, a, a headphones go with it. A barrette around her forehead, and there's a little, little fur... They're furry bees? Furry bees, bees yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, I, I wear this for shows. Really? Yes. The whole time? You know, in connection with the pollinator being the I album. I get it. See, I yeah, didn't even bees, think about yeah, it. No, there's a bee on, and there's a bee on the record cover, right. but I didn't even think about it. Well, we're supporting the bees because, you know, bees. the bees are in dire straits. They are. Yeah. So. Are you beekeepers? 
I am a beekeeper. Really? Yeah. Oh, so there's a whole backstory here. How many how many hives do you have? Well, I have four, but uh, two of them are are doing better than the other two, and. Uh, it's you know it's worrisome, um, but they are really going. So the two that are going are going really great guns. Yours aren't in the city. No, mine are in Jersey. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. they're Jersey bees. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, on the next episode of Beekeeping this week, we'll have Debbie Harry talking <laughs> about uh, her success and failures as a beekeeper. Okay, uh, Debbie Harry, Chris Stein, thank you very much. Thanks. That's oh, good. You're welcome. Good. Blondie's new album, Pollinator, is just out, and the band's U.S. tour begins in July. Also, a breaking development on Debbie Harry's Devotion to Bees, she and the band just launched the Bee Connected campaign, that's B-E-E, along with Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace to raise awareness of the ongoing collapse of honeybee colonies around North America and the world. You can find out more at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our intern is... Claude Gillette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, we'll talk about a little book written 90 years ago. It's an easy read. You feel like you're eating whipped cream. But it's still the last word on the American dream. It was the miracle of American literature. People will talk about Gatsby as a figure. He was a real Gatsby, we'll say. The Great Gatsby, next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.